0: Well good morning everybody, it's good to see you all again. It was the decade of the 1850s, not 1950s, the 1850s, John Payton had been working as a city missionary in his native Scotland, and he felt that God was calling him to leave Scotland to be a missionary to the New Hebrides, an island chain in the South Pacific that was inhabited by cannibals. He he encountered strong opposition from his mentors, his pastors, his friends, they urged him to stay in Scotland. And John Payton wrote this in his autobiography. Amongst the many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They are to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John Payton was a faithful, fearless witness. The world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. We're going to see example this morning of two of these, turn with me, if you will, to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Now chapter 11 is an important chapter, it's a difficult chapter, and there's a number of views on some of the issues here. Um, So I can appreciate what David John said a couple weeks ago about praying that the rapture would come before the sermon, (laughs) but that hasn't happened let's launch into chapter 11. First, a review. Jesus himself gave us a three-part outline of the book of Revelation back in chapter 1, verse 19. Things you have seen, things things that are, and things that will take place after these things. We're in the third part, the things that will take place in the future. And we've seen this overview of the book before, where we have a scroll that is has seven seals, those seals are broken, the seventh seal is broken, there's silence in heaven, and then seven trumpets sound. And then um, we keep going through the book. Right now we're in the, the second section up here of the scroll, the trumpets. And let's look a bit at the trumpet judgments that we've seen already, I think we saw this two weeks ago from David Johns, um, there's seven judgments. The first four are judgments on nature, vegetation, the seas, the fresh water, and the heavens. They're not against people directly. The last three are called woes, and maybe it's because they are directed toward people. The first ones affect people too, of course, but that's not the main direction. The last three are called uh, um, judgment or trumpet five, six, and seven or are called woe one, two, and three. Right now we're in this interlude that we started last week um, with Revelation chapter 10 and uh, the little scroll that was eaten. Now we're in Revelation chapter 11. And then we're going to look at um, the seventh trumpet today as well. So the setting for our chapter, let's look at verse 1. Revelation 11 verse one, then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the courtyard which is outside the temple and do not measure it because it has been given to the nations or the gentiles and they will trample the holy city for forty two months. So the first thing to notice here is that this is a very Jewish context. This whole chapter has a very Jewish context to it. And then some questions should arise. This temple, is this a literal temple on earth or, is it an earth or is it a heavenly metaphorical figurative temple? And what's this 42 months all about? That's three and a half years. What does that mean? And when does that occur? Well, it should remind us of some Old Testament passages. In Ezekiel 40 through 47, Ezekiel had a vision of an angel measuring a future temple, and this will be the temple built in the millennium, but a real temple on earth was in the vision. Zechariah 2, Zechariah had a vision of a man measuring a future rebuilt city of Jerusalem, probably the New Jerusalem, um, in the, after the millennium. And um, These were literal, real temples, not some metaphorical temple. And then Daniel in chapter 9, verse, starting with verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks." So 69 weeks. "...it will be built again with streets and moat, even in times of distress. And then after this, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's the crucifixion of Christ. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And his end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. And these weeks are set of seven, it means seven years, so for seven years he'll have a covenant with the many, but in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate, until a complete destruction one that is decreed gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. Now we've already heard this, I think uh, a number of speakers have talked about this vision of Daniel, the 70 weeks, and his last seven weeks which we see in the book of Revelation and this last seven weeks, a seven-year period, or last last week, sorry, this last week, a seven-year period, is um, split into two, two three and a half year sections. So I think all of this implies that this is a physical earthly temple that's being measured, and it's mentions that the temple is trampled by the Gentiles or by the nations. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That was Jesus in Luke. So trampling is something that happens on earth. That that doesn't happen in heaven. So the city will be trampled on earth. So this seems to be a literal earthly temple that will be built in the future. And as Daniel said, there would be a stop to sacrifices in the middle, so the temple must be built before the middle of this last week of Daniel's prophecy so that the sacrifices can be stopped. So which half of this seven year period is it that we're talking about? Here's a diagram slightly modified from one you saw earlier from Dave Johnson. Is it the first half or the second half of that 70th week of Daniel that is the 42 months we're talking about here? Well, the last half seems to fit better. The trampling seems to end with Jesus' return, and most commentators agree with this. um, The first half, as you remember, is the birth pangs of sorrows. The second half is is when things are really unleashed and they get bad. Now we're going to see two faithful witnesses who are active during this time, and the world needs such faithful witnesses. Let's look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in in sackcloth. Now, why are there two of them? In the Old Testament, you needed two witnesses to establish things in court. Two of them is what's needed to to uh, render judgment and to um, make a strong case. So that's probably why there's two prophets. The sackcloth in the Old Testament is a sign of repentance and sorrow. It's an identification with the people. It's saying, we have sinned. It's not just accusatory. It's saying, I'm associating myself with you. We have sinned. We have fallen. And so they're taking a humble position and the 1260 days, um, this is a Jewish context, so it's probably talking about the Jewish calendar. And if we look at the Jewish calendar, a month is either 29 or 30 days, it varies, and um, because of that the Jewish year starts shifting forward, it shifts earlier every year, about 11 days, and so what? What they do is they add a leap month, about a little more than once every three years. A leap month is added to bring it back to the solar year because the planting and the harvesting is tied to the months. So it's really complicated to figure out exactly how many months is what, and it seems like often in Scripture um, it's just assumed that there's 30 days to the month and they ignore the leap months, and they just do a simple calculation. It gives them an approximate number. And we see this in the next chapter. You'll see this next week. It mentions that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so there would be nour- so she'd be nourished for 1260 days. Then a few verses later, it says she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That's one and two times and a half a time. It's three and a half. And that's the same phrase that's used in Daniel often to talk about the three and a half years. So it looks like this is just being used as an approximation um, for three and a half years. Now, that may not be correct. I might be wrong on this, but um, you know, it might be more exact. But it looks to me like it's an approximate um, three and a half years. Let's look at verse 4. These, these two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now this is drawing on another thing in the Old Testament, a vision that was given to Zechariah. He was given a vision of a candelabra that had an olive tree on each side. In his vision it was one candelabra with seven lamps and two olive trees. And um, an angel had been speaking to him and asked him what he saw, and Zechariah says then in verse 11, and then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I responded the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which emptied the golden oil from themselves? And so he answered me, saying, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the lord of the whole earth. So in in that uh, vision of Zechariah, they stood for Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were two leaders in Jerusalem at the time. But the image of a lamp with an olive tree on each side, or the image here of two lampstands and two olive trees, implies a couple things. The lamp is used all throughout scripture to imply testimony, Uh, the lamp of testimony, um, the gospel, the the truth of God going out. And lamps in these days burned olive oil. So if you have a lamp and an olive tree, that's implying that this lamp has an endless supply of olive oil. It's going to keep being fed with this olive oil. It's going to keep burning. It's It's a perpetual faithful witness that these two witnesses are. The world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. Verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And so if anyone anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. That should remind us of Elijah. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings. King Ahaziah was sick, and he sent messengers to ask a pagan god, Beelzebub, whether or not he'd get better. And God called Elijah to intercept the messengers. It says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going up to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not get down from the bed upon which you have lain, but you shall certainly die. Then Elijah departed. Well, the king didn't like that. So the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men, and he went up to him, and beheld, behold, he was sta- sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, you man of God, the king says come down. So the king was summoning him uh, to his presence, but Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king was a little bit slow. He sent another batch of fifty men, and they met the same fate and then the king tried a third time. The commander of the third batch was uh, was a little more um, tuned into what was going on, so he went up to Elijah and very penitently bowed down on his knees and begged him not to kill him and so God told him, basically you don't have to kill these guys, you can go with them to uh, Ahaziah and uh, Elijah went and delivered this message himself in person to to Ahaziah. So the, the fire out of their mouth, is this literal or figurative? Well, it could be either. I think I would lean toward it being figurative, likening back to Elijah in the Old Testament, that fire coming out of his mouth means he can declare it, and then the fire comes down from heaven. But these prophets are divinely protected. They're bulletproof. That's something that we don't have, but they're bulletproof and they're faithful and they're fearless. The world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. Verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Again, that reminds us of Elijah, he had the power to shut up the sky. first. Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall certainly be neither dew nor rain during these years, except by my word. And the rain stopped. And interestingly, we know it, we read in James, it stopped for three and a half years. It was a three and a half year famine. And why is that? Is that just coincidence? There's three and a half years here and three and a half years in the each half week of of Daniel's last week. Maybe, or maybe this three and a half years was looking forward, kind of trying God trying to make a connection to what's going to happen in the future. The rest of the verse, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now that should remind us all of Moses. Moses was uh, given the power to send plagues, Exodus 7, 17, this is what the Lord says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I am going to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. Then the fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Nile. So Moses was given powers to do plague, to bring down plagues and to uh, to turn the waters to blood. Moses could only do it when God told him though. These two prophets can do it at will. They can do it as often as they desire. These are two faithful, fearless witnesses like Moses and Elijah. They were given divine protection. Now that's something the rest of us don't have. Many of the people who turned to Christ during this period that we're looking at in Revelation are martyred. But there's 144,000 who are divinely protected, there's these two who are divinely protected. Like Moses and Elijah, these two guys are speaking to power. Moses and Elijah spoke to the godless leaders that were over them. These two are speaking to the antichrist who's trying to kill them. They're unpopular with the leaders, with the powers that be. What about us? What about you and me? Are we faithful, fearless witnesses? Or are we afraid? Do you enjoy witnessing to people and sharing your faith? I hope so, um, but it can be frightening, it can be scary. It's, uh, it's often less scary when as a stranger, but on the other hand, it's less effective when it's a stranger because they don't know you. And When it's someone who you know well, it's a little more frightening. When it's somebody who is in power above you, it's more frightening yet. But we need to be faithful and fearless in sharing our faith. Mainly, first of all, we need to have our lives be a good testimony. If we share the gospel, but our lives aren't backing it up and we're not living right, we'll be giving a conflicting message. But we need to be Telling people and letting them know, and this can be done in, in gentle ways. It doesn't have to be pushy. Um, I remember early on in my career, I debated about how much to, how open to be with my bosses and my coworkers. And one thing I did was I had gone to a Christian college for two years, but not graduated, so it would have been easy to leave that off the resume but I put it on intentionally, so that people would have a hint of where I was coming from. And it actually was helpful. I was hired by one boss, whose father had taught at that college, and he knew it, and he hired me on his team. I've had other, other bosses who've... I've um, mentioned things too, and it's a little scary, but um, if you do it right, And if they see that you're honest and sincere, and you're a good worker, and you're you're, um, diligent, usually they receive it well. The world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. But now these witnesses are going to be killed. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, and overcome them, and kill them. Now what's this beast from the abyss? He's mentioned a number of times in Revelation, but he's mentioned one other time from the abyss and one other time from the sea. And we're going to see in two weeks that this is the Antichrist, this is the first beast, the one from the sea, uh, meaning he's a gentile. The second beast is the one from the land, for the earth, meaning he's a, he's a Jew, he's from the land of Palestine. So. This is the Antichrist, we haven't seen him yet in this book, but he's going to come up and make war with them, and he finally overcomes and kills these two witnesses. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, and will not allow their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. So, where is this? It's the city where our Lord was crucified. It's Jerusalem. So, again, this is a very Jewish context in this whole chapter. These two prophets are ministering in Jerusalem, they're killed there, and their bodies are left to lie on the street. That's a great indignity in the Old Testament. That was a curse when somebody's body was left out and not buried properly. And they're like it. Uh, Jerusalem is likened to Sodom and to Egypt. Sodom was immoral, godless, wicked. There's a passage in Jeremiah that accuses Jerusalem of being worse than Sodom. So at this time in the future, Jerusalem is is wicked. It's immoral. It's not a godly city at all. And Egypt. Egypt is a a place that persecuted God's people. That's what Jerusalem will be like in the end. And notice the whole world sees these guys, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The whole world sees them. And they're out there for three and a half days. Is that literal days or figurative days? Well, The last time reference we had was 1260, which was regular days. So this is probably literal days here, three and a half days. Verse 10, And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who live on the earth. So those who live on the earth, that's an interesting phrase. Um, The giving gifts is kind of sick, it's crazy. They'd give gifts because these two guys died. It's, it's like Christmas. Um, but those who live on the earth is an interesting phrase. The Greek is um, katoikuntis taste geis, sorry. Um, gay ge is the word for earth. It's where we get geology, the study of the earth. And gay meant either earth or land in Greek. It's very similar to the Hebrew which meant earth or land. And the same exact phrase that we see here, the same words appear in a number of places in the Old Testament. I just put two of them down. Numbers 3355, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from you, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's exactly the same phrase that we have here in Revelation 1110, the inhabitants of the land. And then in Ezekiel 37, 25, something similar, those who live on the land. So that makes it complicated. What does it mean, those who live on the earth? It could be translated those who live on the land or on the earth. And you have to look at the context to see what it means. If it's a Jewish context, it might be talking about the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. Um, If it's more of a global context, talking about earth versus heaven, man versus angels, then it's probably talking about the whole earth. But remember that the ancients didn't have this idea of an earth as a globe like we do. They didn't have globes. And they had no pictures from, from a spacecraft of what the earth looks like as a ball. To them, the earth was this big flat thing that went a while and then it stopped and it was sea. So they contrasted earth and sea, land and sea, um, or earth and heaven. And we have to look at the context to figure it out. I think here this is probably talking about Jews. Those who are the Jewish folks in Israel will rejoice and celebrate. Those are the ones who are having the big party. It could be the whole earth. It could be just the Jews. At any rate, they're having a big party, but that's not the end. Verse 11, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon all those who were watching them." Now this would be pretty impressive, this would get your attention. And um, this should also remind us of another Old Testament prophecy, may not be as familiar, but Ezekiel had a vision where he was in a valley of dry bones, and God told him to command the bones to live. The Lord God says this, Come from the four winds, breathe, and breathe on these slain, so that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. It's a very similar phrasing to what we have in Revelation 11.11. 11. The, the breath came into them, they stood on their feet. The world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. In verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. So this is very similar to Jesus' ascension to heaven, but he he ascended in front of his disciples. These guys are ascending in front of their enemies. And at that time, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now this is an interesting verse and it brings to mind a a question, is this true or false repentance that's talked about here, terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven? Now most commentators say this is a false repentance, but a few good commentators say it was true repentance. if you if you want to weigh the scholars, the weight is on it being false repentance. Um, but there's some reasons why it might be a true repentance. The, these two words, fear and glorify, appear a number of places in Revelation. Um, here are three where they appear. And in all of these places, it looks like the fear and glorifying is a good thing. It's possible that this is fear and glorifying... Um, by force, that that you're kind of forced to. Uh, But the, the last one that's up here, Revelation 16, 9, they did not repent so as to give him glory. There it sounds like giving glory to God is the same as repentance. It's associated with repentance. So I can't say for sure whether this is true or false repentance. It might be either, but if it is true repentance, it fulfills some prophecies that were made throughout the scriptures that all Israel would be saved. There's a few different prophecies. One of them Paul made in Romans 11, where he says, I don't want you brothers and sisters to be uninformed of this mystery uh, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So And so all Israel will be saved, just as it, as it is written. So maybe... It's false, maybe it's true, Um, we can't say for sure. Verse 14, the second woe has passed, behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, this brings us back to these woes and these trumpets. We're now at the end of the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, and it almost looked like that ended in chapter 9, and then we had an insertion of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 but now it says this is where that ends. So what I think is happening is these two prophets are starting earlier but then at the time when they are killed and then resurrected and this deadly earthquake, I think that's the end of this sixth uh, trumpet, the second woe. And this now feeds back into what we were asking at the beginning Do these two prophets live at the first half or the second half of Daniel's 70th week? If this is the first half, and now it's the end of the um, sixth trumpet, the end of the second woe, and we're at the middle of that seven-year period, that means all the things we've seen so far in Revelation have happened in the first half. The first seven seals are all in the first half. The first six trumpets are all in the first half. And as David John showed us, about half the world has been killed at this point. So it's a little tough to see that that is in the birth pangs of sorrows and not in the really bad period itself. So I think this also uh, would lean us toward this being in the second half of uh, Daniel's 70th week. Now we have, so this is, again, here's a diagram of the trumpets. We've just finished this interlude, and we're told this is the end of the sixth trumpet, the second woe. And now we're going to go into the last trumpet. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, And the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces. Sorry, I messed up my uh, quote here. There were loud, loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This might remind you of Handel's Messiah. This is, this is one of the um, classic pieces or parts of Handel's Messiah. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So this chorus from Handel's Messiah, um, I wish we had time to play it, but we don't. And notice it says the kingdom of this world. It's not kingdoms, it's one kingdom. At this time, there's just one kingdom all under the Antichrist, and that has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is the announcement of Christ's return and to set up his kingdom. The rightful rule of the world and especially of Israel will now be restored. Now, it sounds like this is happening right here in verse 15, the middle of the book. We have another 11 chapters yet in the book. So is this happening now or is it a prediction of something that's going to happen in the future? Well, there's two different views on this. <clears throat> Walverd, which is the kind of the main view that we hear um, and the view that we normally follow, he says the fact that this will be fulfilled at the Second Coming, the, this um, proclamation, the fact that this will be fulfilled at the Second Coming makes it clear that the period of the seventh trumpet chronologically reaches to Christ's return. Therefore, the seventh trumpet introduces and includes the seven bowl judgments of the wrath of God revealed in chapter 16. But Bill McDonald seems to say something different. I'm not sure exactly what he thought, um, but his commentary on this verse, he says, the blowing of the seventh trumpet reveals that the great tribulation is over and the reign of Christ has begun. (coughs) And my uh, New Testament professor, Gary Tuck, just wrote a book the last few months, Jesus Shall Reign. He takes this view as well. He thinks the seventh trumpet is the return of Christ and the setup of his kingdom and then the the judgment of those who have not turned to Christ. I can't be sure which one it is, um, but I sort of lean toward the second view. We have a problem what happens to the, these bowl judgments? Where do we put them? In Walford's view, which is kind of the, the normal view that we hear, the bowl judgments are sort of squeezed in right at the end. And Walford says they happen very fast. Um, so they're kind of squeezed in at the beginning of the seventh trumpet, and they happen very quickly. <clears throat> uh, Bill McDonald says that the bowl judgments happen during the tribulation, and here he says the tribulation has ended. So presumably he thought they happened earlier. And Gary Tuck says that as well, he makes it explicit that they happened earlier, probably concurrent with some of these other judgments, maybe part of the sixth trumpet. So I don't know. Um, To me the second view fits better, but I'm probably the only one on the preaching team that thinks that. So (laughs) I I may very well be wrong and um, some of these things are hard to know for sure. verse 18. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. <clears throat> and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants and prophets and the saints who and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The nations are enraged. <clears throat> this should remind us of Psalm 2. Why are the nations restless and the people's plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So this is looking back at Psalm 2. It's referencing that Um, rage of the nations, but God putting putting Jesus as king on Mount Zion. And then, in the last verse, we see a glimpse of heaven. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This mentions the Ark of the Covenant. I think this is a reminder uh, to us and to those at the time that God honors His covenant promise to Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is where the, the tablets of Moses, the Ten Commandments, were placed. The covenant between God and man. And we're seeing that Ark of the Covenant as a reminder God will keep His covenant to Israel. So what we see in chapter 11, we see two faithful, fearless witnesses. And this is a a great example for us. The gospel is preached. Repentance is possible until the Lord returns to reign, whether he's returning right there in in verse 15 or whether it's later. Repentance is possible until he returns. But most are going to be blinded and will reject God. When the Lord returns, the opportunity to repent will end. So, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I hope you look at this and see the seriousness of this. These things are real, they're gonna happen. We can't be sure exactly the timetable, but these things are gonna happen. We're gonna have plagues. We're gonna have roughly half of the world population destroyed (laughs) by this point. We're gonna have the possibility to repent But most of the people are not going to. Most are going to have the attitude that we saw at the end of chapter 9, where um, they just were not going to repent. The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which could neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their witchcraft, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts." That's going to be the attitude of most people who make it to this point, point. and if you're not a believer when the Lord comes, when the Lord takes his church in the, in the rapture, you're going to go through this period, there's a 50-50 chance you'll make it this far, and then there's opportunity to repent, but there's not much chance you're going to do it. So. I would urge you to take this to heart if you're not a believer today. And those of us who are believers, the world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. We need to be out telling people of the gospel, telling people of the future, the Lord is going to come back, he's going to reign, he's going to have a righteous kingdom on this earth. John Payton ended up going to the New Hebrides as a missionary to the island of Tana. Three months after he arrived, his son was born. But within the next two months, he lost both his wife and his son to tropical fever. He had to sleep on top of their graves so the cannibals wouldn't dig them up and eat them. He persevered. He eventually went to Australia and Scotland to recruit more workers. He got remarried. He returned to the New Hebrides, this time to the island of Aniwa. And after many years of patient ministry, the entire island of Aniwa professed Christianity. In 1899, Peyton saw his Aniwa New Testament printed and the establishment of missionaries on 25 of the 30 islands of the New Hebrides. <clears throat> the world needs faithful, fearless witnesses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank, you <clears throat> we thank you this morning for the witness we see of these two prophets. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, And we would be fearless in spreading your gospel and telling your people um, of the gospel and of the future and of the need to repent. In your name, amen.